Want to go ahead and read the thing? All right. In 1929, a group of transportation manufacturers and urban railway operators sat down to design the world's best trolley. The Electric Railway Presidents Committee, as they called themselves, envisioned a streetcar that would be elegant, comfortable, spacious, and quiet, thanks to its state-of-the-art electric motor. They wanted it to be fast and easily controlled by a single driver. They wanted generous windows and a design that allowed for ventilation and security. Finally, the design had to be customizable to meet the different needs of each city that the ERPC intended to sell to. And sell they did. Between 1935 and 1978, over 5,000 streetcars were manufactured by the St. Louis Car Company for use in both North America and Europe. The design the ERPC came up with for their perfect streetcar was both robust and elegant. However, it lacked some crucial safety features. As American fire authorities revised their thinking around safe egress from buildings following a number of deadly structure fires in the 1940s, escape from streetcars was not a part of the conversation. After all, it was a streetcar, low to the ground, traveling at slow speeds in heavy urban traffic, and full of doors and windows. Even if it did happen to catch on fire, the thinking went, how bad could it be? As it turns out, very bad indeed. On this episode of Relative Disasters... The 1950 Green Hornet Streetcar Disaster. Thank you, Greg. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context implications and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, your host for this episode. And I'm her brother Greg, your co-host. Our main source for this episode is Craig Allen Cleave's The Green Hornet Streetcar Disaster. Absolutely terrible cover. Fantastic book. (laughs) Don't let the cover throw you off. Okay, don't judge a book by its cover, friends. I mean, we all do. We all do. That's true. But don't don't let it hamper... If you are interested in mass transit, history of mass transit, uh, streetcars, trolleys, terrible fires, this book is for you. Sure. Yeah. And this episode was a listener's suggestion from Vaishan. Thank you, Vaishan. We appreciate the recommendation. So I thought we could start by talking about Chicago mass transit in 1950. Okie doke. I got really into <laughs> small sidebar. <laughs> The yeah. history of mass transit in Chicago is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, if you're into urban development or the way cities come together, just a wild story. So beginning in the late 1800s with the building of the Union Loop, which is a two-mile-long elevated train track yep. that runs around Chicago's central business district, the city embraced public transit in the form of not only trains, but privately owned omnibuses, really? horse-drawn streetcars, Okay. And they had cable cars at one point as well. Oh, I didn't know that about Chicago. Chicago had cable cars. Yep. Huh. They were doing the thing. Cool. You they could get doing, yep. anywhere in Chicago. It was <laughs> for the big, the the big fed. Yeah. So in the cool. 1920s, automobile sales began to rise. And soon, yeah. Chicago's transit problems were compounded by gridlock and traffic jams because most of yeah. the mass transit options were run by private companies. The competition for fares was fierce. 
and rival companies were not so much interested in safety as profit. Well, that's... I've never heard of such a thing. That's capitalism, Greg. Capitalism (laughs) ruins everything. Yep. So the city of Chicago started buying up these private companies in the 1920s and 1930s. Okay. And in 1947, the elevated and ground transit systems were finally municipalized and consolidated as the Chicago Transit Authority. Yay! The CTA. So the CTA was faced with enormous problems in its first few years of operation, and one of the big problems was aging equipment. So as you can imagine, the private transit companies had been squeezing every last dime out of their trains and buses and cable cars, and a lot of what the CTA ended up with was too old to repair and run safely. The CTA invested in what can only be described as a fleet of buses, trains, and trolleys, including... Okay. 600 President's Conference Committee streetcars. This is the perfect streetcar that we talked about in the beginning. Yes. And these were one of the most popular electric trolley designs on the market at the time. And they look like a long bus. They run on electric lines suspended above the street, and their motors are mounted underneath the car, so below the driver and right next to the front wheels. And the wheels, of course, run on tracks that are embedded in the surface of the street. They're street cars. A PCC streetcar could hold 75 passengers with seats for 57 Whoa. and standing room for more. Oh, yeah, they're big boys. They That's, are, yeah. They are pretty. And the ones in Chicago were actually, the designers added five inches to one side. So they're actually slightly lopsided because oh. they wanted to cram even more people in there. <laughs> Just don't everybody stand on that side at once. Rush hour in, the... in a big city is no joke. Sometimes yeah. you really no, do need the No, that's true. Inches. That's true. That's true. So passengers entered by the rear or the front folding doors, and those were operated okay. by the car's conductor. And he would also collect their fare and give change. Okay. The car was driven by a motorman who was seated in the front, and he controlled the speed and stopped to let people get on and off. Now... What was the control mechanism? Was it like the classic like San Francisco big pole in the middle of the thing? Or was it like a... Are you talking about the mechanism to control the car or to open the doors? No, no, no. To control the car. It was a little pedal. Oh, okay. (laughs) Cool. All I'm picturing is a golf cart. (laughs) You (laughs) you step on the pedal to go. Yeah. 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 It's like a land paddle boat. Yeah. I mean, it's an electric (laughs) motor. It's not super complicated. Fair enough. There was an additional emergency exit on the side, and that could be operated by a handle hidden on top of the doorframe. And this was not marked very well because the CTA found out early on that kids yeah. like to grab it for fun, and pulling the emergency exit stopped the car. Okay. Okay. So. Yeah. You know, yeah. kids. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> even the most well-behaved child gets a wild hair once in a while. Yep. And uh, emergency exits are something that kids grab. Yes. A Not lot. Not ideal. Not ideal. Passengers could look out windows that ran the length of the streetcar, and windows could be opened for ventilation, but a safety bar built into the window meant that the gap was a maximum of six inches high. Okay. So it was it was designed for ventilating. It was not big enough to stick your arm out and get it chopped right. off by passing traffic. And, or fall out and get run over by the... Okay. 
when the CTA ordered their <coughs> 600 new PCCs, riders okay. were given the option to vote on the color scheme. Ooh. Yeah. The old okay. ones were red and the new ones. Oh, okay. They chose a livery of light green and cream on top with an okay. orange stripe running down the side. They really are very good looking. Okay. Okay. And the minute they hit the streets of Chicago, they were nicknamed Green Hornets. <laughs> All right. Even with 600 of these guys patrolling the streets, people were still in love with their cars. It is yeah. an American thing. We cannot get away from yeah. them. We love our cars. Post-war Chicago built larger roads, and those could accommodate more auto traffic, and they encouraged people to live in the suburbs and drive to town for work. Okay. So this is like the beginning of the big suburbs that come up around most major American cities at this time. It's cars. Yep. It's all cars. With uh, more cars came more gas stations. Yeah. Yep. It happens. Gotta have your yep. gas. Yep. And at this time, you gotta have your leaded gas. That's a topic for another episode. It absolutely is. <laughs> but yes, 100% leaded. <laughs> So gas was delivered by trucks, but these trucks did not look like the big, long, shiny tanker trucks we have today. Right. In 1950, gas rigs for big deliveries consisted of something like a truck trailer, like a Mack Model A, these big, yep. high trucks. And that would be hauling a semi-trailer, which held 4,000 gallons of gas. And if you really wanted to make a big delivery, you would be trailing a second trailer with another 4,000-gallon tank. And those would both be vented so that the fumes didn't build up inside. Okay, okay. Unlike in big cities today, gas drivers made deliveries at all hours of the day, and they were allowed to use any city streets except the ones over subway tunnels. I can't quite get my head around this. They knew that it was dangerous to have gas deliveries this size rolling around in the streets because they said, don't do it over the subways. But every, every other street was okay. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. During rush hour on the evening of May 25th, 1950, a driver from the Sprout and Davis Distributing Company was sitting in traffic on State Street in his Mac Model A, and he had two trailers full of 8,000 gallons of gas, and he was waiting to make his first deliveries of the day. Okay. The traffic that evening was worse than usual thanks to a rainstorm a few hours earlier. There had been more rain than expected, and sanitation crews were out running electric pumps to get the water out of low-lying underpasses that weren't draining properly. And that could take hours. Okay. These pumps yeah. were not incredibly powerful. Super efficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did the job, but it took a long time. Yeah. At 63rd and State Street, a viaduct had been flooded with about 10 inches of water. And since the Green Hornets only had a few inches of clearance between the electric motor and the street... The CTA had been shunting trolleys from the street into a turnaround so that they could detour the water by taking another track. Okay. The change in direction was done by a switch. So a flagman would lever the track open or close by hand at the switch. So he yep. was literally moving a piece of metal into place that would turn the car. And that would shift the train from the straight track to the curve. The Green Hornets didn't have radios, so there was oh. no warning that this kind of detour was coming up oh they didn't they didn't have communication not at all nope oh geez okay so what they did is there would be a flagman to warn the train about 200 feet up the street and that would okay. give the motorman time to slow down okay okay 
slowing down is crucial because this is a very steep curve and the yeah. car would need to be going about two or three miles per hour to do it safely. Okay. Whereas a streetcar going straight down State Street was just keeping up with traffic and could be going 30 or 40 miles per hour. Oh, I don't like this at all. Okay. So if a, if a train hit an open switch at those speeds, it would derail. There's just no physically. There's no way to keep the wheels the in the tracks. Yeah, yes. exactly. No, I hate this. Okay. However, the switch was heavy and the switch was very hard to work. And hundreds of trains were coming down State Street into the detour that afternoon. Okay. To make it a little bit worse, there was only one person on duty today, not two. So they only had a flagman. Really? What? Wait, but they didn't have a guy working the switch? Nope. No. So the flagman had jammed the switch open with a little piece of wood and parked himself at the top of the block to give streetcars the warning to oh slow down. Oh my god. And then they would go into the switch as it was open. Okay. This was not some rogue flagman who was out for revenge against streetcars. This was an <laughs> accepted practice. Obviously, it yeah. was not. It was frowned upon. But if you had to do it, you there could are just do it. not enough people and too much work. And this was right. one of the workarounds that they came up with. Oh God, I hate this. Okay. At around 6.15, the underpass was cleared for vehicles to use, and that was probably to help deal with the volume of rush hour traffic trying right. to do this detour around State Street. So this is before the water is fully drained. So okay. with a couple inches left, cars and trucks can go through no problem. However, there still is not enough clearance for streetcars to use the track without running their motors into the last few inches of the water. So for about oh. 15 minutes or so, traffic was going through but streetcars were still being detoured. Okay. At 6.30, the Sprout and Davis gas truck went through the flooded underpass and about half a block before traffic stopped for a red light, and it stopped directly on the switch track. At the oh same God. time, CTA streetcar number 7078 was heading down State Street at about 30 miles per hour, the usual speed for that stretch. Okay. Whether the setting sun was in his eyes, he was distracted, he assumed the oncoming traffic meant that the underpass was open, or he just didn't see the flagman, the motorman never slowed down, and he hit the switch at full speed just as the Model A gas rig stopped on the track. In an instant, the 20-ton streetcar crashed into the driver's side of the cab of the gas truck, and it ruptured the truck's gas tank, which was mounted outside the cab. And this immediately exploded, sending a fireball into the trolley through the broken front window. Okay. The streetcar jumped the track on impact, and it almost tipped over. Okay. While the gas rig jackknifed across State Street. As the streetcar righted itself, it ripped a 10-inch gash in the side of the first trailer tank, and 4,000 gallons of gasoline was immediately flooding out onto the street. With the yeah. fire from the truck's gas tank, this spilled gasoline had an immediate ignition source, and it was on fire within a fraction of a second of the impact. So by the time the 60 or so passengers on the Green Hornet even registered the situation, they were inside a streetcar that was burning from both the outside and the inside, and they were on a street yeah. that was on fire. Yeah. The one little piece of luck that the passengers had at this point was that the streetcar didn't tip over in the impact, which would have rendered all three exits unusable. Okay. 
It derailed, obviously, and it skidded sideways on the street for about four feet, but it stayed upright, and this meant that all three exit doors were still operable when the streetcar began to catch on fire. Okay. There was obviously a stampede towards the main exit doors at the end of the streetcar because the front exit doors were already burning. Right. But the conductor had been seated at the rear door controls, and he knew that the doors opened inward. So he ordered the first few people to stand back, and he was able to open the door. About 15 people were able to get out, including the conductor, before the crush of the remaining passengers who were pouring to the back of the car in a very understandable panic had pushed the doors closed. Yeah, because they opened inward. Yes, which we know from every other fire story that we've Yeah, It's a terrible idea. People rush for the exits. You have to have an exit that opens outward. Yes. So these doors, unfortunately, could not be opened by beating on them from the inside. The windows that were set into the doors could be broken, but they were too narrow to squeeze through. So in a very short time, the people at the rear of the car were packed so tightly against that rear door, they were completely unable to move and unable, obviously, to get out through that exit. At the center door, where we have our emergency exit, a teenage girl managed to reach the emergency handle and open it, breaking a finger in the process. So she was one of those kids who would pull it uh, for fun as as a passenger. And that was okay. the only reason why she knew where that where exit was. Where it was. Okay. Where the handle was, sorry. Right. She saved okay. her own life and the lives of more people when she opened that door. With the rear doors blocked and the rest of the car on fire, people went for the windows, which opened, but they had that safety bar in the way. Yeah. One very lucky and very small teenage girl was able to make it out of the six-inch window gap but she was the last person to make it out of the Green Hornet alive. Within a few seconds of the impact, the streetcar was fully engulfed in flames, and the spilled gasoline had set the cars on the street and a couple of the nearby buildings on fire, to the point that when firefighters arrived a few minutes later, they couldn't even tell there was a streetcar and a gas truck sitting in the middle of the flames and smoke. And at that point, even if you could get out of the streetcar, you were just... you couldn't get out of the encompassing inferno around it and those poor people who were still on the streetcar had already passed away oh yeah yeah when firefighters finally reached and opened the streetcar they were met by a crush of burned and mangled human remains so of the 60 or so passengers on cta car 7078 that day 34 had been trapped aboard the streetcar and burned to death and most of those remains were so badly burned they could only be identified by personal effects right the motorman of the streetcar, who had been seated at the very front, was identified by his wedding ring. And it kind of mm. goes like that. Yeah. Just just a devastating and very fast fire. Yeah. Another 50 people were injured. And this included both the streetcar passengers who managed to get out, uh, the other drivers stuck in traffic, and the people inside the five buildings on State Street that had caught on fire after the accident. Okay. And the injuries there ranged from third-degree burns to broken bones. Amazingly, everybody who made it to the hospital survived. Wow. The only fatalities are the ones that occurred on the streetcar. On the streetcar. Okay. Wow. Was the fire response delayed by the flooding and the traffic and everything else, too? Or, I mean, not that it would have mattered, but... No, I don't think so. It sounded like somebody pulled the alarm 
And actually, there was a witness in one of the buildings nearby that either saw or heard the crash, and he okay. happened to have the only telephone line that was still working after this after the fire started. Oh, okay. Um, so he called the police station. Sorry, he called the fire the station. Fire station, yeah. Within seconds of the impact, and he was describing okay. to them what he was seeing. So they did know there was a streetcar and a gas truck in the middle. They okay. just couldn't see okay. it when they arrived. Right, right. Oh. The subsequent Ugh. investigation could not pin down an exact cause of the crash, which I okay. thought was really interesting. There is no smoking gun here. I mean, it seems like the streetcar striking the gas truck was the cause of the crash. Yes, but why did the streetcar strike the gas truck? I why didn't the streetcar slow down and go through the curve? Question. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, there's no way to know because the person who was in charge of it is dead, so... Right, and nobody from the very front of the train survived. Right. So there are no near witnesses. Obviously, the motorman had made an error in missing the flagman. But the investigation found that the flagman was at the tail end of an 18-hour workday, and he had not been given flags. Okay. He was using his arms to wave down the trains. Yeah. The switch was jammed open and not levered. We talked about that. Um, but again, this was common practice, especially when there was only one person on this kind of detour duty. Okay. Uh, there were failures in the drainage system. Obviously, the underpass should not have been flooded after one rainstorm. Yeah. The gas truck, with its 8,000 gallons of gas, including, Greg, a 4,000-gallon trailer that did not catch on fire. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. The venting and the valve system actually worked, and Good. this trailer was sitting in the middle of an inferno and did not catch on fire. So, plus one for whoever designed. Yeah, <laughs> the no gas kidding. Trailer. That must have made for some very very nervous firefighters, though. Like you're Absolutely. in there and yeah, you're like, well, could this thing go up any second? You know, yeah. It was the first thing they towed out of there. One would imagine. So, I would not have wanted to be on that duty. You're right. No, 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 no. Uh, so the question is, should the gas truck have been sitting across train tracks at a red light? No, absolutely not. No. <laughs> it should not have we... been in the city at all during rush hour. Come on. No. Sorry. One one last thing. Speaking of which, um, the driver of the gas truck, I assume he died? He did. Um, okay. So I have to keep picturing this in my head because I still don't understand why a truck a streetcar was crossing two lanes of traffic instead of just making a right-hand turn. Right. Uh, but I guess it was just the layout of the street. The first point of impact was the gas tank that was mounted outside the driver's side door. Okay. And then when the okay. streetcar bounced back from the impact, that was when it caught the trailer, the side of the trailer, and ripped that hole in the side. Right. So there was no, no way for the driver to survive that. Okay. No, but I have to tell you, both he and the motorman were seen moving after oh. the fireball, which is so horrible to think about. I don't oh, want to, man. but that is what yeah, witnesses I, said. I don't either. Thank you. Okay. If they were, if they did survive the initial impact, they were gone in in seconds. Okay. The Green Hornet itself was designed to keep people from jumping on and off without paying their fare not for letting people safely out if a fire started. So that has to do with right. the inward doors and the emergency door that was very hard to operate. 
Right. And speaking of fires, the interior of the car had highly flammable material on the seats, the floor, and the ceiling, meaning that once Uh. the fire got going, not only would it burn, but it would release thick black toxic smoke, which a number of the survivors reported made it impossible to see the doors or to see what was ahead of you or even to locate where you were inside the streetcar. Ugh. We hate that. Yeah. There's nothing about this that's that's good. No. No. It didn't tip over. That's really the best okay. thing you could say Fair about enough. this accident. Because if Fair it enough. had tipped over, nobody would have survived. Nobody would have survived, yeah. Yep. So most of the factors that went into the accident were the fault of the CTA. And in 1955, they paid out a settlement of just under a million dollars to the family members of the passengers who were killed in the fire. Okay. That's, that. I'm sorry, that's a million and 1955 dollars. Yeah. So that is actually a fairly decent chunk of change. Not when you split it 34 ways, I don't think. No, I guess, yeah. It's not a life-changing amount of money. It well, certainly I mean, does not make up for the loss of your loved one. In this no, no, I'm, but no, no amount of money would, so. Okay. Following the accident, the CTA implemented safety levers for the doors on the Green Hornet streetcars, and they removed the safety bars on the right side of the window, not the left, because that faces oncoming traffic and people are still sticking their arms out. Gotcha. So they could make half of the windows safer. Um, The other half were still with that six-inch gap. Well, I also feel like that's kind of a six of one, half dozen of the other. Like if you do take those away and somebody hurts themselves by sticking their arm into oncoming traffic, yeah. So I mean, you have to think about the safety of everybody on the car, but then you also have to remember that people stick their heads out the window once in a while. Yep. So that's what they came up with. The rear windows of the car were made larger, and they were reframed so that they could be kicked out in an emergency. Okay. Okay. Despite these measures, there still weren't enough doors for a rush hour streetcar, which, again, could hold 70, 80 people crammed in there. Um, It just didn't have enough doors for all those people to be safely evacuated in an emergency like the May 25th disaster, where people had maybe seconds to decide what they were going to do. Right. And to look for a solution or a way off the car. Right. At the same time, ridership on Chicago Transit declined. And in 1958, Chicago phased out their streetcars in favor of buses. So not even a decade after they ordered this fleet of 600 Greed Hornets, they were like, you know what? We want buses. Okay. Some of the Green Hornets were actually salvaged as parts for rapid transit trains. Did you know you oh. could salvage a streetcar? It's the same track. <laughs> you can, sure. You can pop yeah. the wheels off and uh, put it on a different train, which I love. Very DIY. Sure. Okay. I dig it. But of the 600 PCCs built for the CTA in the late 1940s, only one is still intact and operable. Oh. It lives at the Illinois Railway Museum in Union, Illinois. Cool. And that is the story of the Green Hornet disaster. Well, that's entirely awful, and I hate it. Um, It's pretty bad. Yeah. It's very bad. And although, honestly, given the, I guess I could say, lack of safety measures, Mm -hmm. 
I was honestly feeling like at any moment you were going to tell me. And then along came another streetcar that wasn't paying attention and it slammed into the back of this one. You know what I mean? Like it felt like this was something that even as awful as it was had some mitigating things that kept it from being even worse, but there's not much worse you can get from this, you know? Yeah. The story that the survivors tell is really horrific. And of course it leads to trauma and yeah. And of course it leads to trauma as well as physical injury. Um, The other thing I think of is all those cars stopped in traffic and watching this take place and being in, you know, you feel safe in your car, but no, watching something like this unfold right in front of you had to have been absolutely horrifying. And then to have the street on fire and buildings catching on fire. It yeah. Ugh. Just awful. And you know, I got to say that one of the things that really bothers me about this is that I actually really enjoy the uh the legacy mystery man of the Green Hornet like so to have a disaster that's, it'd be like, you know, oh, the Batman ship failure or something, you know, I'd be like, uh-huh, but I like Batman. Yeah, I mean, this is not a very famous accident. So a lot of places, a lot of articles will note that this is Chicago's forgotten, uh, big air really? around that, Chicago's forgotten uh, streetcar right. disaster. Okay. But <laughs> I don't know. I would imagine I the people of Chicago still know about it, right? Or not really? It You know, there's no site. There's no um, physical reminder of the accident. And Green Hornet streetcars okay. obviously are not used again today. This whole section of State Street was never rebuilt. So those five buildings that burned down, it's just vacant lots now, 70 years later. Golly. So that's why I wanted to, to do an episode on it. Because it is a really, really fascinating story. And it speaks to a very specific time period time period and a very specific thing that many people who live in cities struggle with and that's you know the rush hour mass transit yes which is horrible enough on its own yeah it just you know you take your life in your hands when you drive yeah i'll know that yeah yeah um but you know mass transit is supposed to be so much safer cheaper and more reliable that i think Accidents like this almost strike a chord with people where they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to remember because sure. they still have to get on the bus yep. at 530 every yep. single day. Yep. So I can see why this one is not written about more. But it is a fascinating story. I had never heard of this. And a, a big thank you to our listeners who suggested this because this is absolutely fascinating. So there you go. All right. Well... Here at Relative Disasters, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a more complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to share some insights we missed or just shame us publicly. And you know you do. Why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? Do we have any housekeeping for today's episode? We do. Uh, I want to thank Paul for writing in uh, with his remarks of clarity regarding the tri-state tornado uh, last week's episode. That was a big episode. (laughs) 
I did speak facetiously about an F6 rating, and I should not have. I apologize to the entire Tornado community. Just to be completely clear, an F5 means everything was destroyed. That's why mm-hmm. there is no such thing as an F6. <laughs> There's nothing left to destroy. F5. There's nothing left, yeah. Okay. And I really liked, so Paul actually had a really good uh, analogy. He said, quote, it's like measuring how deadly an illness is based on the severity of the symptoms. Once you get to dead, you can't measure any further, <laughs> end quote. I was like, yes. Okay, so F5, dead. Um, Paul, you have but a great yes. turn of phrase there. I like it. It's it's fantastic. So, uh, but um, I would like to say that the feedback about that episode was uh, very positive. Uh, people really, really seemed to um, it, people who knew about it thought mm-hmm. that uh, we did a good job on, it, and people who did not know about it thought it was fantastic. Uh, another thing that Paul pointed out was there is a k- tornado in Kentucky in 2021 mm-hmm. that uh, wound up being only 10 miles shorter than the 174-mile really? track of the Tri-State Tornado. Okay. So, so it's not as much of an outlier as we thought? That no, no. They're both, they're both extreme outliers. Okay, hopefully. good. But, you know, hey. The more global weather patterns keep changing, the more we'll see. We should do an episode on on the theoretical um, thing called ruin storms, which is this theoretical meteorological possibility. I might make it into a um, extended sidebar or something. But yes, so thank you, Paul, for writing in. Thank you, everybody who listened to the episode and uh, shared your thoughts on Instagram and to our email. Uh, big, big thank yous to everyone. Just for being best. involved. You guys are the best. Uh, speaking Let's of Instagram, see. we are up to yes. 188 followers. Um, Woohoo! I would find it really satisfying to get to 200. So if you've been on the fence, <laughs> we have a beautiful feed. We would love it if you followed us. Sure. Another uh, place you also... can follow us. <laughs> that was my segue. Sorry. I like it. No, it's a great segue. On Patreon, uh, we want to thank our Patreon members for helping to support the show and keeping us ad-free. Um, our patrons get little mini-episodes every month that awesome uh, we call... mini-episodes. Yes, that we call the extended sidebars, where we talk about just random stuff that came up in the research for some of these things. Um, Not totally random. Well, no, but I mean, like, it's stuff that if we covered in the episode would derail the entire episode. Uh, now, if if you do not have the financial ability to be a patron, it is $5 a month. And I know that even at that price point, it can be hard for some folks to do. Please be reassured that we will be posting these after our season ends on our regular. So you won't completely miss out on them. Just patrons get to hear them first. That's all. Uh, and this week's episode was brought to you by Shira. Shira! Our handbrake safety expert. And Lynn. Lynn! Our green hornet color scheme designer. Very nice job. Yes. Well, well done from both of you. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? Well, you know, we've done a lot of disasters recently where a lot of people have died in horrible ways. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm looking right now at a uh, a bit of a palate cleanser. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm looking at tackling the incredibly interesting and very uh, fraught <laughs> uh, topic of the infamous dill burrito. <gasps> have you have you heard of this thing, Ella? A fascinating story, and I hate that you call it a, a palate cleanser because I don't. <laughs> but I'm so excited to learn more. Yes. So next week, uh, tune in while we talk about horrifying foodstuffs with Woo-hoo! the dill burrito.